From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast, this is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this Father's Day weekend. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Commodity prices crumble, but is weather the only weight on prices? A technology that could grow in the coming years, digging into the value of variable rate technology. A fall of fate. A six-year-old and his dad down 70 feet in a well and the remarkable rescue by farmers. And in John's world, fathers and sons and farms. Now for the news, a historic drop for commodity prices this week. Soybeans seeing their fastest daily drop ever on Thursday, with deferred contracts closing down more than a dollar. Traders reacting right now to crop-friendly weather forecasts for the Midwest, with much of the area expecting lower temperatures and some much-needed rain. Now, extended price limits also adding fuel to the fire this week. We're going to have much more on the historic market moves coming up in our roundtable discussion. USDA this week announcing a new round of aid for producers. This time, dairy farmers and the biofuels industry will get some support. Here's the breakdown. $700 million will go to biofuels producers and just under $1 billion will address the needs of dairy producers with $400 million for the new dairy donation program and $580 million in supplemental dairy margin coverage for small and medium-sized farms. Now there's also $200 million for small family-owned timber harvesting and hauling and $700 million in pandemic response and safety grants for PPE and other protective measures to help specialty crop growers and small and medium-sized packers and processors. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack discussing the aid plan before the Senate Ag Appropriations Subcommittee this week. So we're trying to basically identify those groups that have not received help or received inadequate help and trying to get resources out. So I think by the end of this summer, you will see a multitude of announcements similar to what we made today and similar to what we made over the last couple of weeks. The aid comes from funding earmarked for ag producers in the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package Congress passed in March. USDA says it intends to implement the program within 60 days. A new study says if the Biden administration's proposed tax changes on inherited property become law, they could have a huge financial impact on farmers. Republican leaders of ag committees in Congress highlighting the study that was conducted by the Agricultural and Food Policy Center at Texas A&M. The study saying under the Sensible Taxation and Equity Promotion Act or STEP Act proposal, 92 of 94 farms they surveyed would be impacted with additional tax liabilities averaging more than $726,000 per farm. A plan called the 99.5% Act has also been introduced. It would decrease the estate tax exemption with the study showing that it would have an impact on 40% of farms with an average price tag of over $2 million. Now, if both plans were approved, researchers say the only family farms not impacted in the study were the two with 100% leased land. And tax liabilities to farm with owned land averaged more than a million dollars per farm. There would be a significant tax liability across all the farms that we look at, except for two. So 90, 92 of 94, that is that is for sure. And the for sure thing I can tell you is even with the projected from factory higher prices that we have right now, that none of them can, can absorb this tax um, liability without having to refinance and go into debt. Not one. That's the take home. 
Now, it's worth noting the analysis was requested by Senator John Boozman, the ranking member of the Senate Ag Committee, and by Representative G.T. Thompson, the ranking member of the House Ag Committee. Both are Republicans, but Texas A&M points out its research is apolitical and done at the request of both Republicans and Democrats for more than three decades. Now, USDA has said the proposal will not affect family farms that stay in the family. Well, congestion at the nation's ports continues, and shipping delays are causing concerns for the ag industry. Now several groups are calling on Congress to take action, among them the North American Meat Institute and the National Pork Producers Council. The Meat Institute saying the issue right now is ocean carriers declining to take U.S. ag exports and instead returning empty containers to Asian markets to fill them with consumer goods to ship back to the U.S. It also says carriers and terminal operators are charging excessive fees. The industry saying the cancellations and delays are costing U.S. meat and poultry companies millions. MPPC says compounding the problem is the fact carriers are failing to provide accurate notice of loading times and then imposing penalties on exporters for missing those loading windows, the cost of which are ultimately passed down the supply chain to farmers. MPPC issuing potential solutions asking for expanded operating hours at ports and expedited enforcement on preventing unreasonable financial penalties for exports. Well, the overall corn condition crop ratings dropped four points this week. That's been the steady theme so far for corn this year. However, a couple key corn producing states tumbled double digits in conditions in just a week, showing that dryness may already be taking a toll on this year's crop. Largely across the northern Corn Belt due to heat and emerging dryness. At this point, June 13th, only 68% of the corn rated good to excellent. We have seen a four-point drop in that number in each of the last two weeks. In other words, two weeks ago, the corn was 76% good to excellent. And as for some of the top-watched corn-producing states, Iowa and Minnesota's corn crops are now below the national average. But there was no deterioration on the low end of the overall ratings in the U.S., with 5% rated very poor to poor nationwide. Well, a dome of heat lurked over the country this week. We'll have a check of weather with meteorologist Mike Hoffman next. Meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us now with weather. Mike, it was another hot week, but the commodity markets indicating rains hit key crop producing areas. So is more rain on the way? Good morning to you, Tyne. Yeah, with the heat being suppressed southward a little bit uh, this week, we should see some more parts of the country with increasing chances to get some rain. Now, some of this area up here where the root zone shows very dry conditions, northern Mississippi Valley back into uh, the eastern North and South Dakota area did get some rain, but a lot of it ended up uh, off to your southeast, but that helped some of these areas, southern uh, Great Lakes. Still very wet, Arkansas, Louisiana, some of the surrounding states through the Tennessee Valley, and obviously still very dry out west. When you factor in the long-term drought monitor, uh, you can see over the past few weeks, we've seen an erosion of the drought in the southwestern plains, so eastern Colorado, uh, western Texas, those areas have seen some rain and therefore the drought has been shoved to the, the west. Still very dry, extreme to exceptional drought parts of North Dakota, but there's been some pockets up here where that's even improved a little bit, but then it's gotten worse north of the I-80 corridor there into parts of the central Great Lakes. All right, here's the jet stream. 
big trough coming in. Uh, the, the heat's been on most of this past week and uh, into the early part of the weekend, but we're seeing some cooler air come into the Plain States, Northern Rockies, and that's going to be shifting into the Great Lakes in the Northeast. Uh, by the middle of the week, this is a shot of uh, two or three days of much cooler air. <clears throat> that will move on off to the east. Another trough trying to develop, as you can see on Friday, that could give some moisture. And then uh, that trough kind of digs in, as you can see, to the northern plains. So that's going to keep the heat into more typical areas of the southwest southern plains rather than those northern areas that we've been seeing over the past week. But it also brings some heat to the southeast that you haven't been seeing quite as much of. All right, let's go day by day. On Monday, we are looking at uh, remnants of that tropical system came into the Gulf Coast, still over the Carolinas with some rain, spotty thunderstorms elsewhere along the Gulf Coast. Uh, northern system with areas of showers and thunderstorms with that and much cooler air coming in behind it. Chilly air, actually, uh, north of the Great Lakes for this time of the year. Cool on Wednesday right through the Great Lakes in the Northeast. Scattered showers and thunderstorms through the Gulf Coast area and uh, showers in the Northeast. A few showers there, parts of the Northern Plains. By the time we get to Friday then, a system coming through the middle of the country with some rain and thunderstorms scattered throughout the southeast and a little system off to the north with a few showers in southern Canada. 30-day outlook for temperatures. I'm going above normal for the western third of the country, northern plains and the northeast. Below normal then from Tennessee down toward the Gulf Coast. Precipitation over the next 30 days above normal Gulf Coast area up to the Great Lakes, most of the mid-Atlantic and uh, central, east-central states. And then you can see southern Canada through uh, much of the west, unfortunately, still below normal over the next 30 days. Time? Well, it wasn't just the wetter weather forecast impacting prices this week. Bob Utterback and Joe Vaklovic join us to break down the markets next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Bayer Plus Rewards, helping make every part of your season more rewarding. Visit mybayerplus.com to learn more. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this week. And as I mentioned, a big week in the market. So to digest everything, Bob Utterback, as well as Joe Vaklovic. Joe, I mean, on Thursday, we saw soybeans down 60 cents, corn down 20 cents. That followed multi-down days. What is putting pressure on these prices right now? Well, traders are definitely paying attention to the weather patterns and forecasts both. We saw a little bit of rain in western Iowa, um, you know, late last week or late this week. And I think that's part of it. I think that the forecasts, which are calling for cooler and wetter conditions across a lot of the central and eastern Corn Belt are also responsible. But there's some other factors here, too. I think that the Fed talking about higher interest rates sooner than expected is an issue. I think that uh, the EPA, the Biden administration, these uh, talks about reducing uh, renewable fuel obligations for refiners, I think that's an issue. I think this stuff regarding China and commodity speculation is an issue. There's, there's a lot of negative factors factors here this week aside from weather. Yeah, we'll get into some of those other factors. But first, Bob, we're talking mid-June here. It seems awfully early for a weather market. Well, this market's been out of character ever since last fall. We started out in August. We didn't have a fall correction, rallied all through the fall because of China demand buying. So everything is kind of out of sequence. But I agree, yes, we are, it's a little too early to talk weather. And but we are have some really problems. We got some replant problems in Missouri. Your guy, guys say corn looks like onions uh, burning up in North Dakota and South Dakota. And but the market is saying 
wait, it's still too early to say it's, it's there's a problem. And I think these other demand issues has got the market skittish, uh, and the market took out some very important technical supports. So the market's in free fall, seeing how far we can go down. And I think the commercials have bought a lot of their summer commitments, and that's what affected the spreads and the bases. And so the market, the bull is looking for some foundation of support. And since you took away the, the wet weather and put wet weather in the forecast, he has anything to grab onto. And so that's why we're in a panic free fall. But I think we're very close right now. We're, last time we went down was down 13 days. We're nine days down. We're actually a more accelerated break than the last the May correction. So I think we're pretty close to a short term oversold condition. But for this market to come back now, you're going to have to have hardcore 2012 weather to go back to those highs. And usually if that happens, if you get back to the highs, everybody will get bullish and miss the market. So this is going to be a next four or five weeks is going to be a real tough one. Yeah, we really don't want that 2012 weather. But Joe, I mean, you look at some of these areas that did see rains. It wasn't like it was widespread. After a week where USDA's crop progress report showed like Iowa corn conditions down 14 points. It's not like these rains look to save this crop, but is the market acting like it did? I don't think it's because of the rains that have occurred. I think it's because of the forecasts, which are calling for a lot more rain, uh, much cooler temperatures. The rains that we saw at tail end of the week over, say, western Iowa, uh, the accumulation was not that great. The coverage was not that great. I don't think uh, from a weather standpoint, it's it's just because of that. I think the forecasts moving forward, and, and when you're talking cooler and wetter forecasts during the last half of June and into even the first part of July and some of these extended forecasts, that's a really bearish deal. And you got to remember that these large speculators have been so heavily long, these row crop markets for such a long time now. Um, it, it's it, it, This is enough to cause some liquidation, I think. Yeah. And, and Bob, real quick, you know, we did see expanded limits in the soy complex on Thursday. Did that have anything to do with that really sharp drop? Yeah, I think so. And now we have to see fall through Friday, but now we're going to start seeing over the next four weeks, the Friday, Sunday night attitude. You can think in the Friday, very bearish looking for the rain in the forecast. It was just talked about by Joe. But if we come into Monday and Tuesday and they change those forecasts and everybody is sold into the report, Sunday, Monday could be very violent to the upside. I'm not going to give up on a bounce back rally, but this is the last bite of the apple. Historically, Rich Feldes, our senior economist, Sergio O'Brien, put out some comments. The average rally, summer rally, is 50 cents in corn, over a buck and a half in beans. I think you've got to give some hope that there is a bounce, and but you've got to set your targets. And once it gets there, be satisfied. And unfortunately, the weather scare that needs to get market back to the plus $6 level in the December corn, plus 5, plus 525 in D22. Mm -hmm is going to be pretty severe. Yeah, so what is it going to take to see that bounce? We will talk about that later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, this Father's Day weekend, a special Father's Day tribute from John Fitz. While I certainly recognize the significant and fortunately growing number of women in production agriculture, at this point, it's still pretty much a male-dominated occupation. This aspect places considerable pressure on relationships between fathers and sons. That dynamic can be tricky in any family. But add in a business angle with real money at stake for both and it can become very difficult. But it can also be one of the most rewarding times and contain the most cherished memories. Tolstoy maybe said it best. Happy families are all alike. 
Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. While there are many resources families can use to manage transition, changes, and problems, having gone, gone through both sides of this duet leaves me with some simple and certainly obvious advice. First, recognize and cherish the time spent working together, even when you're convinced the other guy is doing the job wrong. Working side by side remains how men typically judge people. Most fathers never experience a child as a co-worker and as a result often feel their effort is misunderstood or underappreciated. Regardless of how you get along, children working with fathers are forming patterns for later life instinctively. Sons may experience this more strongly because they are simultaneously imprinting gender patterns. My strongest memories are when I farmed together with my father, even though it was emotionally draining for both of us. How long this time together lasts is of course a matter of genes, health, and chance. So this Father's Day, try to give grievances a rest to honor the reality or memory of working with a father. It is one of the blessings of our work too easily overlooked. Remember, it's not just backs and knees that become less flexible with age, so children who hold expectations rooted in the realities of aging will suffer fewer injuries to their pride and less impatience with their fathers. Although we had a good relationship all our lives, I wish I had given Dad a little more slack because I now share many of the unknown burdens he must have carried in his heart as well. Finally, realize there's no person's good opinion he wants more than his children's. And the link between fathers and sons and father and daughters are two different species. So. If you're wondering what to give Dad this weekend, I would start by just giving him a break. Thanks, John. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we are heading to the plains of Kansas to check out a classic bread tractor. As you can see, it starts real good, and it just drives like a new one, and nothing else to be done with it. Triple Series was the last tractors that Massey Harris made. Actually, the merger with Ferguson was going on at the time they were being built. Uh, uh, kind of a low production number, uh, all the Triple Series were. Uh, this particular one is a Riceland uh, version. It's got the arch front axle, the, the wide uh, tires on the rear uh, with the Rice tires. So that is a factory-made tractor. My dad, uh, bought a triple four Massey Harris new when I was nine years old. So I kind of grew up on it. And uh, this one came from, a, also came from a salvage yard just over west here at, at Auburn. A Massey dealer had it. I've pretty well restored it, actually switched motors in it. But uh, the rest of the tractor, it's kind of a put together the best parts I had, the best motor, the best rear end and everything. It's uh, uh, the power steering and everything. It, uh, it is a good tractor. Strictly play toy, use it here. Show it down here at the uh, Power of the Past tractor show that we have every, every year in September and pull the family through the parade of power with a wagon behind it. For me, it's just a hobby and it's, uh, it's really fun, I guess you'd say, to, to be able to have something that, because when I was driving that tractor 50 years ago, I didn't think about it. I didn't ever 
wanting to restore it or get it back or anything, you know. So it's, it's, it's quite an experience. It's a nice hobby. Well, later this Father's Day weekend, a dramatic rescue of a father and son after the six-year-old boy fell more than 70 feet into a well. And the outcome is one even the farmers who rescued them can't explain. But first, USDA's June acreage report could create some surprises. We'll talk about it next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, with these wild swings in the market, we're going to bring back our marketing analyst right now, Joe Baklovic, Bob Utterback, to talk about what happened this week. All right, Joe, we talked about the weather market. We talked about other factors impacting the drop, dramatic drop in these prices this week. What is it going to take to test the highs that we've already seen this year? Well, it's mid-June, and we talked about how weather forecasts and patterns are at least partially responsible for the sell-off. But the crop is not made. We're not anywhere close to, to being at that point. You need these rains that are in the forecast to come to fruition. You need these cooler temperatures to come to fruition. Um, you need to see some, some better-looking crop conditions, perhaps, as a result of these rains that are in the forecast. So the market, to some extent, is is just betting that you know these forecasts are, are the real deal. They're going to happen. We're going to see these widespread rains in the central and eastern Corn Belt. We're going to see these cooler temperatures. And if that doesn't happen, it could be off to the races very quickly. Um, all that being said, the market uh, uh, seasonally has a tendency to, to top in June um, during these summer weather events, uh, more so than it does in July. So if, if the market has already topped and it topped in mid-June, uh, that would not be unprecedented from a seasonal standpoint at all. Yeah, Bob, I know technically you've been watching this double top in the markets. If we would take that double top out, what would that mean for prices? I think you'd have to see corn carryover drop from the 1.1 billion in the last report. You'd have to start talking 750 and the fear that it's going to get tighter. Secondly, you're going to have to have China really come online and start saying, hey, we're going to be in that 32 to 35 million metric ton purchase area, which we're still kind of in the dark yet because the export sales are now on new crop are not projected. And which to get that 750, you're going to have to start talking yields um, 172, 173, which, you know, so the bull now has to prove. He's, he's been kind of on a ride since August on China pushing it. Now the weather bull's got to push and he's got to have the weather. And if, so I'd say the next three weeks are going to be every week you're going to have to see the rains come, miss, and the heat come in. Well, Joe, I mean, heading into this big June acreage report, what's the talk? What's the assumption when it comes to acreage in this updated report from USDA? The assumption is that we'll see much larger corn acreage and also larger soybean acreage versus March intentions, but maybe the rise in soybean acreage will be muted relative to the rise in corn acreage. That's the general idea right now. Corn acreage is going to be 96 or 97 million. Soybean acreage maybe creeps up to 89 or 90. Um, the trade almost always gets this stuff wrong. There's almost always a big surprise in these reports. I don't have a clue what the acreage numbers are. And, you know, we know what the estimates are from all the private groups and everything, but I guarantee there's going to be some sort of surprise on June 30th. All right, Bob, Joe, thank you so much. Well, if a farmer won the lottery, what would he or she invest in first when it comes to technology? We'll have that answer next. <laughs> 
Technology Is, a U.S. Farm Report special report, is brought to you by John Deere. Well, we're starting a new series here on U.S. Farm Report focused on technology that matters most to farmers. A recent Farm Journal survey asked farmers if they won the lottery, what technology would they invest in first? And a third said variable rate technology. As that technology gains speed, one agronomist thinks it will soon become common practice on farms across the U.S. So you can see the, the soil really hasn't moved. It's all still flat. Mitchell Hora pushes farming norms with every pass. It perfectly rips all this cover crop and residue to the side, and it gives us a perfect little seed bed right there. This 26-year-old farmer is carving out solutions which are key to his vision for conservation. Farming in Washington County, Iowa, Hora isn't afraid to try something new, even with variable rate technology. But in some of our better, higher organic matter soils, we'll bump the population up a little bit. And actually, on some of our stuff this year, we put in some ultra-low trials as well. Hora says his ultra-low trials are seeded at 20,000 plants per acre and on poor clay soils that typically don't push 100 bushel per acre in yield. So to put 20,000 plants per acre out there, try to give those corn plants as much opportunity to retain water and to be able to be competitive as they can. No need to spend the extra money on the additional seed. The Iowa farmer says he's also pushing planting populations to see if there's a max. Then we have 60 inch corn too. That's at 50,000 population in the row. Farm Journal agronomist Ken Ferry agrees. Creating blocks of populations across a field can produce valuable information. I would recommend that you go two to 4,000 below where you'd normally go and two to 4,000 above as you're setting this test plot up. So you know that range in there um, that, that, you're, that you're working with. And testing extremes may also harvest surprises. And it's not a matter of trying to push the heavy soils to a higher high. It's take those lower soils and lift those yields up and reduce those costs. As variable rate technology can help reduce costs, Ferry says the exact opposite is what often creates hesitancy. So the biggest obstacles uh, to farmers implementing the technology, of course, one is cost. In so many cases, it's a gain, but the grower looks at upfront cost. Ferry says that includes everything from GPS to outfitting a planter to be able to adjust planting population on the fly. Farmers maybe look too short term. They don't look at the full value of what the ROI is. Farm Journal test plot data found variable rate technology can yield anywhere from $63 to $100 per acre more. The more variability you have in your farm, the higher the ROI. So we can make six and eight and 12 row planters pay back pretty strong. And Hora agrees discovering the ROI in a decision like variable rate is driven by the data. But it's taking that data and knowing how to implement. That's where there's somewhat of a disconnect. And the key to bridging the disconnect is technology, says Hora. Utilizing the data, not for the sake of more data, but utilizing data for the sake of a better management decision. As higher commodity prices means more farmers can afford to possibly make investments, Ferry expects the use of variable rate technology to grow. So the amount of customers that we see moving into the variable rate, both nitrogen and population, is picking up steam on a yearly basis. Well, we'll continue to follow this series throughout the year. And for tools to help with your technology decisions, go to agweb.com technology. From Sarah Bang, and I hope that's correct, in New Ross, Indiana. Would it be possible for someone to start a corporation that every U.S. farmer and rancher can buy into, similar to the stock market? 
then this corporation could build plants and other things that farmers and ranchers need across the U.S. or across the world. For example, soybean processing plants, meat packing plants, ethanol producing plants, gas stations that are designed to benefit farmers, products to make farming safer, research and development to improve farming, etc. As a result, the farmers and ranchers would receive dividends on the corporation's profits. If so, some farmers and ranchers could donate farmland and buildings to build the plants in exchange for shares in the corporation, while others buy shares with cash. Sarah, this is a great idea, so much so that farmers began exactly those kind of efforts back in the 1700s in Europe. They're called cooperatives, and they operate essentially as you described. And there are differences in what functions they perform and which markets they serve. For example, some ag co-ops participate in selling inputs, such as fertilizer, and especially providing market outlets for and processing facilities for their patrons. Co-op market share varies by commodity, but this is the relative share of all U.S. cooperative sales. Within each commodity, the numbers vary wildly though, with co-ops accounting for 80% of all dairy sales, but only about 15% of fruit and produce. For grain marketing, it's all about location. Minnesota grain production is dominated by co-ops, which is kind of ironic when we think the headquarters for grain uh, giant Cargill is there. In case you're wondering how North Dakota gets over 100%, it's because a lot of grain is shipped into the state to be sold. Having served on a co-op board of directors and attended national co-op meetings, I have learned there is one aspect that does seem to be true. The bigger a co-op gets, the more it looks and acts like a private company. The old farmer saying, as big as ugly is big and ugly. While this is a frequent gripe from farmers, reasonable people facing identical business challenges could, should be expected to reach similar strategies. The concept, however, remains sound, and co-ops do work to keep the cooperative spirit. But the effective differences between co-ops and private firms are often hard to detect. Thanks, John. Well, up next, if your six-year-old son or daughter fell more than 70 feet into a dark well, would you jump down to save them? That's exactly what one father did in northwest Missouri, and it was a group of farmers that came to their rescue. It's a Grit with Grace story you'll want to see next. Grit with Grace is brought to you by Zoetis. Your dedication runs deep and it fuels everything Zoetis does. To protect and support cattle and those who care for them, we are Born of the Bond. Learn more at bornofthebond.com. Well, the lengths a parent will go to save a child knows no end. And for one father, it's his quick thinking and courageous decision that helped save his six-year-old son. It's a remarkable rescue this Father's Day weekend about a father and son who were greeted with grit and grace. May 10th was a day just like any other for the Leesburg family. Brandon was working cows while his sons Louie and Everett played and then stopped for a drink out of this water spigot. And as Brandon closed the gate, he noticed Louie, who was just standing a few feet away seconds before, was nowhere to be seen. And I asked Everett where is, what was wrong and Everett said Louie fell in the hole and he pointed there and it was just a tiny hole through the board. What was a board covering up this well had rotted out in the middle 
And as the board gave in, the six-year-old fell 70 feet straight down into frigid water. And I bet that was only just a matter of a few seconds. And I, I didn't think. I ran over to that hole that looked, you know, not much bigger than a basketball. And I didn't see anything and I couldn't hear anything until a couple more seconds. And I heard, you know, a splash and some gasping. And um, that, there was no thinking. With the sounds of his son drowning, Brandon knew time wasn't an option. So without thinking twice, he jumped in. I just jumped through that hole and the board kind of uh, obviously I made it a lot bigger. Um, but you know, hey, you don't think. I was just looking for the fastest way down there. Without knowing just how far down Louie was, Brandon says about halfway down, something told him to reach out. There was a pipe, turns out, after I jumped down and my eyes adjusted, it was. Oh, it's quite a ways. It felt like half half the well um, when I looked up, and I was able to uh, grab a hold of the the pipe that goes down to to the well motor, and uh, stop my descent. Brandon said he would free fall and then reach out to the pipe to stop himself. He did that three times, all while Louie was still screaming for help. Once we were down there, Louie had enough confidence in me. Said. Uh, all right, Dad, uh, you can pull us out now because the, the pipe to the well motor. And I said no, because uh, the last 20 feet were so slick I couldn't hold on to it. It was just like a zip line into the water. As Brandon reached the water, he grabbed Louie. I still had a hold of that pipe and I just uh, braced both my feet up there and, and grabbed uh, Louie and, and uh, put him on my chest because that water, I don't know, you know, we never took the temp on it, but I'm sure it was close to 50, if not colder. And um, he was already shivering. But as Brandon got to the bottom, didn't you say, Daddy, I love you. Thank you for saving me. Yeah. He knew there was no way to climb back up. He goes, Dad, how are we going to get out? I said, your brother Everett's going to have to save us. And so uh, he goes, how is he going to do that? And I said, he's going to have to run to the road. And so from 70 feet down in the dark well, Brandon yelled up. So I just told Everett he was going to have to be a big boy and, and uh, run out and stand by the mailbox until somebody drove by. And, um, and then he said, be he a did big that. Boy be a big us. boy. Be a big boy for us. You got to save us. And that's exactly what the three year old did. Everett was standing along the road, and we just couldn't figure out why he was standing there. So we stopped, and he was saying, My daddy's in a hole. As the McKinneys reached the farm, they thought Brandon was in a hole somewhere in the pasture, but then noticed the four-wheeler still running. And I said, okay, show me where he's at. And he pointed down in that well. And then I yelled at Mark. Well, I just jumped out of the pickup and called 911. Hi, County 911, where's your emergency? Yes, this is Mark McKinney. I need some help. A guy fell in the well, the boy in the well. Okay, what's the address? I don't know, it's Scott Liesenberg Farm. How far did they fall? I don't know, probably 40, 50 foot. Okay, are they complaining of any injuries? I don't know. They just said he needed help. He, he went down to get his boy out of the well. I have okay. no idea. Do you know how old they may possibly be? I have no clue, ma'am. I just need some help. Mark told Christy to call their neighbor. I was so emotional, I can't even, I didn't even know if he could get even out of what I was trying to tell him. That neighbor was Dan Athens, a farmer who lives just right up the road. When she first called, she was pretty distraught. And what I got out of it was Brandon fell. Okay, I didn't know what, where she, and then she finally said south of your house, so I knew it was Brandon Leesburg. And then she got 
out that it was he fell into the well. Thinking it was just Brandon in the well, he acted fast. I knew how deep my well was. It's 140 foot. And so I thought, I'm going to grab a barn rope. I didn't even know how long it was. As Dan pulled up to the well, the 911 call captured his first words. Brandon, Dan Aspen, we're going to try to send the rope down to you. And he said, okay, we're going to send Louie out up first. And that's the first that I knew that he was in the well. Dan says in that instant, his heart sank as Dan's son was also by his side. Oh, your other boys down there? With those words, the rescue was just getting started. We'll have the dramatic outcome when we come back. Grit with Grace is brought to you by Zoetis. Your dedication runs deep, and it fuels everything Zoetis does. To protect and support cattle and those who care for them, we are Born of the Bond. Learn more at bornofthebond.com. Well, as you just saw, after six-year-old Louis Leesburg accidentally fell more than 70 feet into a well, his dad jumped in to save him, with five farmers answering calls for help. As Dan sent the rope down to get Louie, he didn't know just how far down they actually were. But the rope Dan brought was like 85 foot long, and, and we used about every bit of that rope to get him out of there. But as he pulled the six-year-old up, he was heavier than Dan thought. And then all of a sudden, it, something broke free, and it got lighter. Well, when he got up here, he had, uh, had the wires wrapped around his arm, and I think it was just pulling the, pulling the pump up and dragging on the side of the well. And at that time, Eric Duncan, who works on the farm, and Jacob McKinney also showed up to help. We finished pulling him up, and I had a hold of the rope right above his hands, and I just sat him on my knee while we they got him untangled. Took the wires off him. And then I knew I had a bunch of hoodies left in my pickup, so I just picked him up, took him to pickup, and wrapped him up, and turned the heater on as high as I could. Less than nine minutes after the 911 call was initially made, Louie was out. You're out, buddy. You're out. With Brandon still at the bottom of the well, the five farmers knew he would be too heavy to just pull him up with the rope. Yeah, we went so they used here, what we? was left of the old windmill as a hoist. So we just started pulling and I hollered down to Brandon, you know, are you able to help pull yourself up on the pipe? And he said, yeah. I said, you ready to go? And he said, let's go. So we started pulling. As Brandon reached the top, he says he collapsed from bracing himself against the walls of the well for so long. It was those five farmers who rescued Louie and Brandon before the ambulance had even reached the farm. A series of events that didn't happen by chance, as Brandon remembers what he and Louie did while their three-year-old son and brother ran to get help. What did we do? Did we pray? Mm -hmm. Did we pray a lot? Yeah. You asked me who was going to save us, right? Mm -hmm. Who saved us? And who helped him? God. And who's who, who helped us? God. Well, I think the hero here is probably Everett, you know, sending him out to the highway to to stop somebody for help. You know, what would be going through Dad's mind is, okay, yeah, I got my son in the well. How am I going to get help here? And uh, what a trooper to go out there. It's, he's the hero here, not us. We're just neighbors to help anytime anybody needs anything. Five farmers and one dramatic rescue. I can remember being in the bottom of the well and Louis said, uh, Dad, are you crying? I said, no, this is uh, my 
my happy laugh. That's all I can hear. As Brandon relives the fall, he says it wasn't a coincidence he and Louie both survived with only a few scratches. We have angels looking after us. God was up there. There must be something special he wants to do with these boys is all I, all I know. So we're looking for big things anyways. As the links of their father's love on that May day proved to be powerful and unbreakable. How much do you love your daddy for saving you? A lot. Brandon says he and the boys now count windmills on their drives, making sure they're well aware. And he agreed to share their story, hoping it would help encourage others to cap wells with concrete and possibly save another life. Wow, there's details of that story that we weren't able to air this weekend. You can check out the full story at agweb.com. Well, this Father's Day weekend, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to join us again next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great Father's Day weekend, everyone.